0: Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, this morning, Acts chapter 6. Two weeks ago, I spent both services teaching what we call righteous indignation, which is the attitude of a godly spirit against sin. Right. Then last Sunday, we spent both services studying sin itself and how... God has called us to such a diligent hatred of sin as we see how heinous it is to him. And we're to oppose it in our lives with all our beings. We have left the book of Acts, which we're studying in our evening services for a couple of weeks. I want to cover Acts 6 this morning and Acts 7 this evening because they're closely connected. And they deal with the calling of a man named Stephen and then his defense when he's on trial in the seventh chapter. Acts chapter 6 is short. I won't be too long this morning on it, but I hope that I can accomplish several things. First, I want you to know that we're studying sacred history. So much effort is made in this world to teach men history in universities and high schools and grade schools, most of which is relatively worthless. I wouldn't even need to use the word relatively. It's worthless. Man hasn't learned anything from history except that he ought to continue to ignore God. But we want to look at sacred history, that is, inspired history, history that's given to us by God. This is church history that counts. Every religious denomination has their own collection of church history all tainted through the eyes and the deceitful heart of those that wrote it. Right. But we want to we want to humble ourselves before God's history of what his churches looked like when the spirit of God was upon them and they multiplied greatly. Right. This is our standard. We want to measure ourselves not by some man's writings but by the word of God. Amen. The second thing we want to see from Acts 6 is proper church order. There's a There are some things taught here in Acts 6 that we want to remember, and we want to do things God's way, and not the way that men may imagine. And third, and most of all, I hope that all of you men can leave, and all of you women, not being convicted as we were two weeks ago to be as Moses, or the sons of Levi, or Phinehas, or jail, but to be as Stephen a man full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. I hope that we'll all be provoked by the New Testament example of Stephen. Let me read to you the first seven verses. This chapter is divided into two halves. The first half, the calling of the seven deacons, and then Stephen is identified for us more particularly. The first seven verses. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Amen. Amen. This is a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a church full of the Holy Ghost with 12 apostles serving it. What a blessed church it was indeed. And it's the sacred history that we want to look at this morning. Now, we have seen in the first five chapters that God was blessing this church immensely. It began in the upper room with how many? 120. You mean that was all that could be mustered after three and a half years of the Lord Jesus Christ? Serving, teaching, performing miracles? There were 120 devoted ones in that upper room. But on the day of Pentecost, or the morning of Pentecost, we had 3,000 added. Shortly thereafter, 5,000 men. Shortly thereafter, those were multiplied. Now you take 120, add 3,000, add 5,000 men plus women and children, and then you start doing some multiplying. This church was huge. It had many widows. Now the Lord doesn't know about a welfare state. He knows about a welfare church. And that is that the church should provide for the welfare of all their members. Amen. And when a widow has lost her husband and no longer has children to take care of her, it's the church that should take care of a widow. And that's the truth of God's word. Amen. It doesn't matter that we have a government that thinks that's their responsibility. It's our responsibility. But let's notice in this first verse, it says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, the church had grown greatly, There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. Now let me point out that the gospel had not yet gone to the Greeks. The gospel had gone to the Jews. Jesus had told his apostles in Acts chapter 1 that you're going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus said, I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a lot in that verse. First of all, he's sent to the sheep, which are the elect among Israel. Second, he's not sent to those outside of Israel. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Not until we get to Acts chapter 8 and 9 and following 10 do we find the Greeks or Gentiles being presented with the gospel. But now how do we have Grecians in this church? These were proselytes. That is, Gentiles that had come from around the world to worship in Jerusalem because they believed that the true worship of God was only taking place in Jerusalem. So they had given up their nationality, they had given up their religion to come to Israel and worship in Jerusalem as proselytes. We can see these in chapter 2 and verse 10. Acts 2 and verse 10, as we have a list of 15 different language groups being represented By the apostles' gift of tongues, we read, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. There were from the city of Rome Jews and proselytes, that is Gentiles, that were worshipers of God via the Jews' religion. They believed that the only God was the God worshipped by the Jews. And so that's the Grecians that we have in Acts 6 and verse 1. Now their widows were supposedly being neglected compared to the Jews, and there'd be a temptation to do that. The Jews were a very particular people, did not have a great deal of respect for the Gentiles, greatly outnumbered these proselytes, and therefore there was murmuring that their widows were being neglected. And so this murmuring would come to the attention of the apostles. And so we have Peter, James, and John, gifted so greatly by the Spirit of God and by Jesus Christ, able to accomplish and do great things, to explain and interpret the Old Testament Scriptures without error by the gift of prophecy, to be able to heal to be able to raise the dead, to be able to speak in any known language to man, to be able to interpret any such language, to be able to discern spirits and all the other gifts they had, and here they are being bothered with murmurings about the widows being fed. And it says it's called the daily ministration. That's correct. A widow indeed that doesn't have family to support her, in a proper New Testament church, will be supported daily. I mean, the daily needs of that widow will be taken care of by a church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Look at First Timothy chapter 5, just briefly, where we have the rules concerning such widows laid out for us very clearly. Men today, even Christian men, many times want to shirk their God-given responsibilities and leave it up to Medicare, Medicaid, and the government. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man, but it doesn't say, leave all your duties to the ordinances of man. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have in verse 3, honor widows that are widows indeed. And that honor there in verse 3 is not, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. That honor in verse 3 is financial support and care for her as the the next 10 verses are going to explain. But it says, Honor widows that are widows indeed. Not every woman who has lost her husband is a widow indeed. You may have disqualified yourself as a woman and not received the support of the church if you don't meet the qualifications. And I'm not going to go through every phrase of these ten verses here, but I want you to come down to verse 10, verse 9, where we have a list of the qualifications. If a widow has children or nephews or relatives that can support her, they are supposed to do that. But if she doesn't, then the church is supposed to support her. But then there are limitations on which widows are supported. And this is the Word of God. This is how we study the Bible. We don't get warm and fuzzy feelings about certain kinds of widows. We don't petition the church to take care of a widow because we like her. Because she once fed us cookies and milk when we were children. No, the Bible tells us how we take care of widows. Here they are. Verse 9. Let not a widow be taken into the number. Now that isn't church membership. That's the number of widows receiving the daily ministration of support by the church. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old. If you're 55, you're too young. Having been the wife of one man, she didn't have multiple husbands. Well reported of, for good works. She has a great reputation for good works, Christian works. If she have brought up children, she's been a great mother, in, the God, in God's definition of that term. If she have lodged strangers, she was given to hospitality. When she had the means available, she took care of strangers. If she have washed the saints' feet, if she's shown that humility and service characteristic of good saints, if she's relieved the afflicted, when she had an opportunity, she helped the poor herself, as the virtuous woman does in Proverbs 31. If she have diligently followed every good work. But see, verse 11 says the younger widows refuse. If she's 55, she's too young. The Lord would say to her, go get married. And you'll have a husband and maybe, well, not children in that case, excuse me, but you'd have a husband to take care of her, and so she wouldn't need to be have the support of the church. And so he goes on the rest of this chapter for young widows to go and get married. But now if a woman can handle the single life when she's well on in years and her husband dies, 1 Corinthians 7 encourage her, encourages her with the Spirit of God to remain single. But the young ones who can still bear children and guide a house, get married because you're going to be sorely tempted in that single state is what 1 Timothy 5 is all about. We're going to leave it there. I want to show you that what we have in the sacred history is not an aberration. It's what all the churches of Jesus Christ are taught to do in 1 Timothy 5. And very careful rules are laid out as to the care of those widows. But, you know, a strong exhortation is made first. If they have children, let those children learn to repay their parents for all those parents did for those children when they were young. Because that's the natural order of things. The children ought to take care of the parents, not the church. And if there's nephews or other close relatives, it's family. And if a man doesn't provide for his own in that way, he is worse than an infidel. And he's denied the faith of Jesus Christ. Because the faith of Jesus Christ says that we take care of widows, right. even if they're not our own flesh and blood. But if they are, there's certainly a burden upon us to take care of them. Remember, James chapter 1, verse 27 tells us, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. That's true religion. You know, you can listen to men today and churches today and look at all their programs and very few of them show what pure religion is, but that's pure religion, taking care of the fatherless and the widows and keeping himself unspotted from the world. Well, this murmuring comes to the apostles and brethren, what a waste of time for apostles to be distributing food to widows. You say that doesn't sound very nice. You don't sound very honoring of those widows. Yes, I am, because you're forgetting the great gifts that those apostles had. And to waste their time waiting on tables like waiters and busboys would be a great waste of a tremendous gifts that God had poured out upon those 12 men. So the 12 call the multitude of the disciples to them and say it is not reason. It is not reasonable. It doesn't make sense for us to wait on tables and to leave the Word of God. Look at what God's called us to do, and look at what He's enabled us to do. That's where we ought to be applying our efforts. And so the apostles are reasonable men. And so we have here, under the inspiration of God, the formation of another office. And that office is going to be an office of helpers for the apostles and the ministry of the Word so that ministers who are called to serve the Word of God are not hindered from doing it by wasting their time in menial, manual, secular, natural, carnal matters. But they can give themselves to prayer and the Word of God, as they say in the fourth verse. Bishops, you know, we now have, there's two offices left in the New Testament church. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Let's see what they are. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, and here are the two offices of the New Testament church with the bishops and deacons. There you have it. Bishops and deacons. When you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the apostle lays out the qualifications for bishops and deacons, there you have the two offices stated again. Apostle has gone prophet has gone. An evangelist in a New Testament sense is gone. Evangelist in a New Testament sense is is a man, the likes of which are not available on this planet today. The men who call themselves evangelists today are traveling salesmen. They go from church to church. They have a few canned messages. They just repeat them from church to church. Nowhere in the Bible is such a ministry ever found. An evangelist of the New Testament is a man who went and preached the gospel to those who have never heard. That's what evangelism is. Preaching the gospel to those that never heard. The great example of an evangelist is Philip. You say, was he one of those seven that we read earlier? Down a few verses in in Acts chapter 7? Yes, he was. He started out as a deacon. But when the great persecution arose about Stephen, Philip was also an evangelist and it tells us, he went down to Samaria and preached and converted almost the whole city. They'd never heard the gospel. These men today that travel around and take advantage of a pastor's flock, that is not an evangelist. That's a made-up job that God's Word doesn't know anything about. Amen. An evangelist preaches to those who've never heard. Right. And the person that does the work of an evangelist is the bishop. Right. Second Timothy 4.5 <laughs> tells us that every bishop is supposed to do the work of an evangelist. Every bishop has a responsibility to preach the gospel to those that have never heard when he has an opportunity to do so. And that's how evangelism takes place. We're going to limit ourselves to the Bible. Men have created all sorts of organizations, offices, ideas, contrary to the Word of God. We're going to limit ourselves right here. Bishops and deacons. Amen. I want you to look at what a bishop's supposed to do with his time. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Do you think I needed a concordance to find these verses as to what a bishop's supposed to do with his time? No. I hope that your pastor doesn't have to look it up what a bishop's supposed to do with his time. But I want to show you what the word of God says and it's very clear. 1 Timothy 4:13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself partially to them, and let the administrative duties take the rest of your time. No, it says, meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. A minister is going to appear very profitable to his church the more time he spends reading, exhorting, and in doctrine, which is teaching. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Churches that are lost are lost because pastors don't do their jobs right. Churches that aren't being profited spiritually are because the man of God isn't spending enough time, all of his time, reading, exhorting, and teaching. So, when an administrative responsibility comes up that would take the man of God away from reading, exhortation, and doctrine, then there's a need for a helper. And that helper is a deacon. And that's what we have in Acts chapter 6. Now the apostles lay out the qualifications for what for a deacon. Verse 3, it says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report. <coughs> honest report. Now report is your reputation. What is reported about you? And I would hope that every man in this assembly, instead of just hearing, the sacred history of Acts being read to you and explained, that you would also be provoked to think about the fact, I want to be like those seven. I want to have the qualifications of those seven that if there was ever a need, the congregation would think of me. Not for my own personal glory, but for the fact that I met the qualifications that God by his holy apostles said, made, Very special men. I hope every man in here wants to have the qualifications that we're reading right here. Honest report. You have a reputation that you always tell the truth. You're never known to lie or to equivocate or to exaggerate. But you are a man of honesty. When you speak, a person can count on it. They can bank it. Because what you have said is good. They don't need a contract. They don't need fine print. They don't even need a handshake. They have your word. Amen. This church was big. How many? Maybe 100,000 members. And they were looking out seven. Seven. And out of, of 100,000 members, there were seven that had these qualifications. They were the cream of the crop. Of that church, they were the best. The most honest men. After honesty, and you can understand honesty, can't you? Yes. What have we read in the first five chapters? Mm -hmm. Members of this church are selling their assets and bringing the sale price and putting it at the apostles' feet. Now, when you're selling real estate and bringing the proceeds, and you're not counting anything that you have as your own, but you're willing to give it all, the apostles are taking in a large amount of money. And who's going to oversee the distribution of that money? But the deacons. They better be honest. They better be honest in the accounting of what they're receiving, and they better be honest in the distribution that all widows are treated alike, that there isn't any partiality, but they're honest. Honesty doesn't allow you to consider partiality or favorite widows or to give more to one because she gave something back to you or because your son married her granddaughter It's of honest report. You want men that are very honest handling the financial affairs of a church like this where there will be so much money involved and in the care of these widows. Then it says, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Now, the the qualifications aren't very long. But when you get a man full of the Holy Ghost, that sort of takes care of the rest. When you have a man full of wisdom, sort of takes care of the rest. And so we have recorded here by Luke Full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. That is what every man in this assembly and every woman should want to be also, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. How do we know a man that's full of the Holy Ghost? Now, in these times, you could tell by the gift of tongues, miracles. Well, we're going to see in just a few verses that Stephen did mighty signs and wonders. So it was easy to see that the Holy Ghost was upon a man. But today, after those sign gifts have gone away, how do we tell a man full of the Holy Ghost? By the fruit of the Holy Ghost. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. And this is what every man in this church should want to be known for. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. A man that is full of the Holy Ghost is going to be living these nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, and he is going to be crucifying the flesh and the lusts and the affections of his flesh. That's a man full of the Holy Ghost. What a man. He's a man that loves. And that's the Christian definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. He's full of joy. He's a peaceful man. He's a glad man. He's a long-suffering man. He can put up with obnoxious people without flying off the handle. He can bear those that are problematic in the church. He's a gentle man. He's a good man. He's full of faith. He's meek. He doesn't want an office. He's temperate. That means he's self-disciplined. What a great man. This is how we would measure today, a man full of the Holy Ghost. And every one of us should not shy away from Galatians 5.22. There is nothing effeminate about Galatians 5.22 and the fruit of the Spirit. It's the mark of a great man. And he has crucified his flesh and the lusts and the affections of his flesh. Full of the Holy Ghost. He's also full of wisdom. That is, he's got discretion. He knows when to speak and when not to speak. He's got good judgment. He knows how to solve problems that others just look at and are distressed by. He's got wisdom. He knows how to apply knowledge. He can think and reason and analyze fairly, accurately, and in a way that pleases God. And that's all based on the fear of the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He's a man that's based in the Word of God. And so he's able to divide in situations by God's Word. He's full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Oh, brethren, you know, we read about Jesus Christ that He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's a man growing in wisdom. He's growing in favor with God and with men. I hope every man wants to be like this. Honest report. His reputation is flawless, perfect honesty. Full of the Holy Ghost. These fruits are not just little dried up prunes hanging off your branches, but they're lush, full, sized fruit hanging there that all can see not hidden by your leaves so that you have to tell people i am peaceful just think about that for a minute i am happy if you're telling somebody you're happy why did they ask listen love joy you shouldn't have to tell people it should be visible and a man full of the holy ghost will be visible all of it at once these nine aspects, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, brethren, don't make the mistake of telling people about the nine fruits of the Spirit. There aren't nine fruits. There's one fruit. Amen. If the Spirit of God is in you, you'll have all nine. I've heard people say, I'm a seven-fruit Christian. Well, what kind of a spirit do you have? The Spirit of God bears fruit, singular, Amen. and that fruit has nine aspects to it in this passage. Right. Well, I've got some of the fruits of the Spirit. If you've got the Spirit, you've got His fruit. And if you've got His fruit, you've got it. And these are the things that we want to emphasize and we want to develop in our lives by the Spirit of God. You cannot learn these things with a Dale Carnegie course. Right. You cannot learn these by attending a Zig Ziglar business seminar. You do not learn these by listening to Napoleon Hill cassettes 4,000 times in a month. You learn these by submitting yourself to the Spirit of God and to the Spirit of God's Word and humbling yourself thereto and asking for them and walking in the Spirit. And you will bear this fruit. If you have your sins confessed completely and you are humbly walking before God, the Spirit of God will bear all of these in your life. A man full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13, give us a longer description of deacons, and I'm just going to read it to you because it's not something we want to spend all our time on or much time on. I want to read, it says in 1 Timothy 3, and this is how we don't go to a seminary and we don't go to a bookstore to find out what we need when we look for a deacon. We go to the word of God and let the Lord's words govern the choice. 1 right. Timothy 3.8. Likewise, he's just given the qualifications for bishops. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. They need to be serious men, not double-tongued. That's of honest report. They don't say one thing to someone and then something else to someone else. Not given to much wine. They're not addicted to much wine. Not greedy, of filthy lucre. They're not financially motivated in their lives. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. They haven't been known for heresy. They've got a pure conscience about believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let these also first be proved. In a church, they should be given responsibilities before they're ordained to be a deacon so that you can see that they can perform and do the work and to do it well. Let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. When you put them, when you give them assignments and they do them well and they do them in a blameless way, then you know if they meet all the other qualifications, you found a man that can do the job of being a deacon. He will take good care of the administrative responsibilities of a church. Even so must their wives be grave. They need serious wives, not slanderers. Sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. Any of you polygamists out there, you can't be a deacon. We don't have any in this nation, but if we were the First Baptist Church of Saudi Arabia, there just might be a few in the assembly. But they couldn't be a deacon. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children their own houses well. And brethren, I want to give you this 13th verse, and I don't ever want to neglect it, and I'm sorry for past teaching years gone by in which we might not have honored this verse as we should have. They that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. If a man is put in the office of a deacon and he does a great job in that office, He has purchased to himself a good degree, and that's not a degree that men write up. That's a degree that God writes up. It's the signature of the Lord Jesus Christ at the bottom. And great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. The faith that is in Christ Jesus is that the churches of Jesus Christ need helpers so that the bishops can give themselves to the ministry of the word. And when a man has executed that job well, he has done something bold, and he's purchased to himself boldness in the faith that's in Christ. And he's got a good degree. But we don't ordain deacons unless there's a need. You'll notice that on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down in the 120, he didn't say, because we've got 12 apostles, we need four deacons for each of them, so ordain 48 deacons. Deacons did not originate until there was a need. And no church needs a deacon till there's a need. The common practice today, especially among Baptists, is no matter what size of a congregation, you need a few deacons. And that the title of deacon is handed out like it's some flattering title to keep the old man happy. And that's not the word of God, because a deacon ought to have a job. And brethren, that job is a man appointed over a business. Isn't that what it said in Acts chapter 6? Deacons should be... I'm, I'm going to leave this subject because we must. Deacons are a supported position that's never been heard of in a Baptist church. But it's the Word of God. The laborer is worthy of his hire. The Bible is very simple. If a person is serving in a capacity like that for a church, he ought to be supported. It's just that simple. The laborer is worthy of his hire. It is a man singled out of the congregation and given responsibility over a business. He's an overseer. He's a ruler. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the qualifications was he has to rule his own house well. Because it's taking care of very touchy matter, and that's Finances. Let a man get into the finances of a church and screw things up and you'll see just how much attention should be given to those matters. Because people don't like their money being messed with and rightly so. They've given it to the Lord and they want it to be handled discreetly, wisely, and in a godly way. We don't have the practice of ordaining deacons simply for the exercise of making men feel good. That's giving flattering titles unto men. And do you know what Elihu said in Job 32 about giving flattering titles to men? If I were to do so, my maker would soon take me away. We don't do that. That is an error of the church, of the Baptist churches of this country. You just ought to have a number of deacons. They don't do anything. They may sit in a particular place. They may have a deacon's meeting once in a while and have coffee and donuts, but they don't have anything to do. They may have a few little things to do, but usually in those churches, there's also a church treasurer, there's also a building and maintenance man, and the deacons end up without a job, and so when you have a deacon board that doesn't have a job that the Bible's given it, it starts to think it's the guardian of the pulpit. Now where in these two passages have we found a board of deacons guarding the pulpit? Deacons don't have any ability to guard the pulpit. They were given responsibility to oversee financial matters, administrative duties, building maintenance, taking care of widows, not meeting with the pastor every quarter and telling him what they did like and what they didn't like preached over the last 90 days. And in many churches, they're very accomplished at that skill. But that's not found anywhere in the Word of God, and so we've corrupted New Testament practice. A deacon is not one of Jesus Christ's gifts to the church. When Jesus Christ ascended up on high, he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. He didn't give deacons. It's not a spiritual gift. A deacon is a man of great character and reputation who's able to take care of the church's money without anyone in the church complaining about it so that the pastor-teacher can spend his time giving it wholly to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. I hope that's been plain enough. We'll preach on it more when the time calls for it. We'll give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose seven men, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Notice even apostles, when they're going to do anything in the way of appointment or business in the church, they pray. Even apostles. I find that a strong exhortation to us to be praying. Because if 12 apostles felt the need to pray before they simply appointed seven men to take care of the finances, we certainly should be praying before we do anything. We should almost pray before we open our hymnals. It's the importance of prayer that we see in the New Testament church. And you know, I've been harping on that from the first chapter. That as we look at this early church, they prayed. They were a praying people. And spiritually minded saints will pray and will pray a great deal. Deacons are not to be despised as I've already shown you from chapter 3 of First Timothy and the 13th verse. Now the church was pleased with these seven. And that makes it better when the church is pleased in a matter of finances so that no one has to worry about their giving. And I hope you'll notice down toward the bottom of verse 5, it says that one of those seven men was Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now see, the Grecians had made sure that at least one proselyte had been selected so that the widows of the Grecians would be taken care of by this man Nicholas. Church history tells us, church tradition... Tells us that Nicholas may have been the founder of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans in the book of Revelation, but guess what? We're not going the jury's going to disregard that remark for the most part because we're going to stick to the word of God. We don't, if God wanted us to know that, he would have told us that. Right. What we need to know is recorded plainly here for us. And what we need to know is that the apostles ordained them by laying their hands on them, which was their appointment, the official, public, Figurative appointment of those seven men to the job. And it would have been done publicly. Everyone knew about it. And the word of God increased. I love that in verse 7. Those words follow those first six verses. When a church follows church order, the word of God increases. That doesn't mean that we get new books added to the Bible. The word of God doesn't increase that way. It means the effect of the word of God. That's a figure of speech called metonymy. The word of God increased in its effect. Men's lives were being changed because the apostles were, to, were able to apply themselves to their work. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. This church continues to explode because its geometric growth, its multiplication of this church, and a great company of the priests, We're obedient to the faith. Isn't that great to see? That even some of those priests were obeying and following the Lord Jesus Christ. We can read back in John chapter 11 that most of them at that time were afraid to confess Jesus openly because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue. But here we see them obeying the faith. Now we come to verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. There aren't many deacons like that today, are there? Full of faith and power, doing great miracles and wonders among the people. Because Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost. And the Holy Ghost for 40 years gave great signs and wonders to the New Testament church to confirm the word of the apostles and to bless the church before it had the New Testament scriptures. By 70 A.D., When the Lord Jesus Christ was done with the nation of Israel, when the apostles had been confirmed in their preaching by all their miracles, and the New Testament scriptures were beginning to come together, the sign gifts went away, and the great signs and wonders were done no more. There was no need for them. And, you know, we've been over that before. Even the apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, could not perform miracles like he had so extensively earlier in his life. Remember, hankies could be mailed from the Apostle Paul, and if you were sick and you got one of Paul's hankies, you would be healed. But when we get to Second Timothy chapter 4, which is the last chapter he wrote, in Rome to Timothy, he told Timothy, I can't help your stomach problems, why don't you try a little wine? And then he told Timothy, I've left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why didn't you heal him, Paul? Because even Paul no longer had that ability because the gift of miracles and signs and wonders had gone away, Paul's ministry was already well established. Everyone knew that when Paul spoke, you ought to listen. That's exactly what it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and it went away. But for this time, this 40-year period of what the Bible calls in Hebrews 9.10, the time of Reformation, when that Old Testament form of worship is being reformed to the New Testament, There were great signs and wonders done to get the attention of the people. That's why they're called signs. And that's why they're called wonders. Because it made the people wonder so that they would listen to a lowly man like Stephen. But then once they listened, they got an earful. Let's read about that. Verse 9, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and of Asia disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Stephen could preach. You're going to find that most of these saints could preach. When we get over there into Acts chapter 8, when there was a great persecution in Jerusalem, all these saints were scattered abroad and many of them, not apostles, Not bishops. They'd go into a city and they'd find a place where there were people that wanted to hear something about God. And they spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it tells us very specifically, it was not ordained men. We're going to get into that later. But here's Stephen preaching. And a certain synagogue rose up and disputed with him. But they were not able to resist the wisdom and spirit by which he spake. I want you to look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, to, for we, so that we can see where Philip got his great ability, where Stephen got his great ability in disputing with those of that synagogue. It's a gift from the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 21. Amen. Jesus told his apostles, 21-12, But before all these, that is, all these things he had just described, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, And it shall turn to you for a testimony. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to haul you and grab you physically, put you in prison, and bring you before rulers and kings but you're going to get a testimony that I'm with you in those moments. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts. Get established in this matter. Not to meditate before what ye shall answer. When you're sitting in a dungeon, and you know that the next morning at 10 o'clock, you have an appointment before a council to give a defense of your faith, you make sure that you're established in this fact. Don't you dare think about what you're going to say. Don't meditate on what you're going to say. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Isn't that what it said in Acts 6? That they couldn't resist the spirit and wisdom by which he spake? There it is in Luke 21 and verse 12. Let's come back to Acts chapter 6. They, could not re- they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake, because he was full of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God gave him the words to say. Now, I thought that I just read in First Timothy chapter 4 that ministers today were to give themselves wholly to meditating on these things. Did we read that also? Yeah. So we've read about one category that doesn't, that better not do any meditating, And we read about another category that better spend their whole lives meditating. Because one category has the Spirit of God giving them the words to say, and the other category has to find the things to say from God's Word. And that's the bishops without that great gift. That gift was only temporary for those 40 years. It doesn't apply to ministers today. Some wish it did. Some ministers enter the pulpit flip open the Bible and look down and take up a text and think that by so doing, they're leaving their ministry open to the Spirit of God. They're leaving their ministry open to slothfulness because a man of God is supposed to give himself to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, and to meditate and to study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. It doesn't say to trust. It says to study. You trust the Lord to bless your efforts in studying. That's what the New Testament teaches. Stephen didn't have to do that. This synagogue accused him of false doctrine, and they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So what, do, what does false doctrine do when it cannot refute the truth? It creates lies and false accusations and slander. Then they suborned men. To suborn a man is to seduce or bribe or to secure a man who will give false accusations or false testimony in court. That's what the word means. We don't use it much anymore, but that's what it means. Then they suborned. They paid or secured men that would give false testimony, which said, and here are some of the false accusations they made against Stephen. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, And against God. Now, do you think Stephen would have blasphemed God? Of course he didn't. They accused him of blaspheming Moses. Now, he may have had a few things to say about the fact that Moses' law was being put away and had been completely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, but he hadn't blasphemed Moses. And I want you to remember these words right here because they're going to help us tonight. When we look at Acts chapter 7, you will see that Stephen by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, preaches a magnificently perfect sermon answering these accusations. He uses such wisdom in how he organizes, and he didn't do it himself. You're going to read a sermon tonight, a defense in Acts 7, that's from the Spirit of God on how to deal with false accusations. We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, you know, get the crowd, Large numbers never have held the truth ever in the history of the world. So you stir up a crowd, because obviously if there's a great crowd of people, and there's only a few men holding to a particular point, and the few men must be wrong, because most men think that truth is measured and determined by numbers. And it isn't at all. If truth was determined by numbers, then Noah and his family would have drowned in the flood. If truth was measured by numbers and the Pharisees were right and Jesus was wrong, truth has never been measured by numbers. But they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, you know, get all the religious authorities involved and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And there at the council, they set up further false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not. He can't stop blaspheming. This holy place and the law. I want you to remember that also, that he was blaspheming the holy place. They put so much emphasis on their brick and mortar, the temple. He's blaspheming the holy place. You're going to see how he deals with that holy place tonight in his defense. This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. Now, how's that blasphemy? That's just stating a fact of the ministry of Jesus Christ, a fact largely lost today, but that we believe that one of the main messages of Jesus Christ was that that generation that rejected him and refused him, he was going to come back within that generation and destroy them And he did. Jesus said that over and over. John the Baptist said it over and over. Peter preached it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 40 on the day of Pentecost when he said, save yourselves from this untoward generation because Jesus Christ was going to come back and destroy them. And he did under the Roman armies of Titus in 70 AD when he leveled that temple and took it apart one stone from another just as he had told the apostles exactly as he told them in Matthew chapter 24. Not one stone will remain upon another, but it will all be pulled down. Because they rejected me, and upon them shall come all the righteous blood ever shed on this earth, all the way from Abel down to Zechariah, which is the last murder of the Old Testament. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Yes, indeed. Jesus preached. The Bible tells us the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached. And Jesus was the kingdom of God. Yes, Jesus taught that the customs of Moses were going to be changed. They called it blasphemy, but it wasn't. It was the truth of God. And so many times... The truth has been accused of blasphemy, though it be the truth of God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and those that swear by the creeds of men accuse us of blasphemy. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, and we believe it. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Those were true statements But their accusation that that was blasphemy was wrong. They wanted to get Stephen guilty of blasphemy because it was immediate death by stoning. Now, brethren, we have a deacon who has been hauled before a council. He didn't meditate on what he was going to say. He opened his mouth and spoke, and they could not resist the spirit and the wisdom by which he spake. That was a testimony that God was with him. Didn't, that, didn't we read in Luke 21 Amen. that it will turn to you for a testimony? There was Stephen. I mean, all I was going to do was take care of widow's tables. And there he is now facing a whole council of angry men. But when he opened his mouth and defended the truth, they could not resist his words. Amen. So he had a testimony that God was with him. And I want to tell all of you that want to put your trust in him and be men full of the Holy Ghost. The Lord may not be with you in precisely the same way, but He will always be with you. Amen. What's the next testimony? It's in the last verse of that sixth chapter. That council took a look at Stephen, and what did he look like? His face shined like an angel. God was with him. He might have been only a deacon. He might have been ordained by the apostles to take care of tables. But when the Lord was with him, His face was shining like the face of an angel. He had a glorified face. And they could look at that and still want to keep him on trial? God blinded their eyes and blinded their heart. If you saw a man that all of a sudden began to look like an angel while you were looking at him, what would you want to do? That's always what happened in the Old Testament. They'd hide from the presence of an angel. But there was Stephen. All that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him. That means they were watching his face. There was no surprise. There wasn't sleight of hand here. It wasn't a trick. They were steadfastly watching him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. I want you to love Stephen. A couple weeks ago I had you very excited about Moses, the sons of Levi, and Phinehas in jail. I want you to love Stephen. This is a man full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, of honest report, that the Lord used mightily, so mightily that God wants two chapters of the book of Acts telling us about Stephen. Though he was a deacon, ordained to take care of tables, he could refute the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and he looked like an angel God gave him wisdom and God gave him a face to condemn those wicked men and they went ahead to stone him anyway in chapter 7 as we're going to see tonight. This is the sacred history of Acts chapter 6. But I also hope that, you'll, that we'll take out of this as individuals the exhortation to be men full of Holy Ghost and wisdom Amen. and to be men of honest report. Would it be that if the apostles said, look ye out seven men, that they'd be able to find a whole congregation of men who have reputations for perfect honesty, who are full of the Holy Ghost and bearing his fruit everywhere at all times, who have crucified the flesh and the lust and the affections of it, and who are full of wisdom that know how to conduct themselves and to take care of business matters. Wouldn't that be great? All of you men, all of you young men, should want to be like this man, Stephen. You may not be called to be bishops. You don't know that you're not going to be called to be a deacon. And we should have that kind of character. May the Lord bless all the men, all the women of this assembly to have the character and the spirit-filled presence of Stephen the deacon. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.